Welcome to The Sword and the Trowel, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jared Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. Thanks for listening to The Sword and the Trowel today. Delighted to have you with us and delighted to let you know that the Institute of Public Theology is soon to open applications. So April 15th, the application process will be opened. You can go to instituteofpublictheology.org to apply and to find out more information about how to apply. A big thanks to our Founders Alliance members. We're grateful for your support and encouragement. We hope that you're greatly blessed by our partnership in the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. Today, we are delighted to have with us a man who doesn't need uh, much of an introduction to most of the folks who would listen to or watch this podcast. Rod Dreher has uh, uh, put his mark on the cultural conversations we're having in this nation and beyond this nation as well. Uh, most recently with his book, Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. And Rod is a, an editor, senior editor at the American Conservative. He's authored several books. So the Benedict Option is one I think we've talked about mm-hmm, here in the past mm-hmm. as well. But he's graciously given us his time today to sit in on this podcast. And he's coming to us from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Oh, that's how they say it down there. <laughs> yeah, Rod, welcome. We're glad to have you with us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yes, we love seeing um, Carl Truman's book as well, just over your right shoulder there. We're big fans <laughs> of that book and your forward uh, there. And, and it was great. I read Truman's book first and then read your Live Not By Lies and uh, have been very blessed by it. So mm-hmm. looking forward to just diving right into the thoughts that you have communicated here in your most recent work, Live Not By Lies. The uh, part one of Live Not By Lies, you talk about understanding soft totalitarianism, which lines up so much with how we've been thinking. Um, toward the end of your book, I think in your conclusion, you distinguish between hard totalitarianism and soft totalitarianism. You say this in your book, hard totalitarianism depends on terrorizing us into surrendering our free consciences. Soft totalitarianism uses fear as well, but mostly it bewitches us with therapeutic promises of entertainment, pleasure, and comfort. I can hear the conversation of the Orwell Huxley in the background there, but I'd love for you to spell out what is soft totalitarianism and uh, how have you seen it manifesting itself in American society? Sure. Well, uh, first of all, let's define our, our terms. Totalitarianism is a political uh, system that in which one party or one ideology or one leader has total control of a society and everything within that society is politicized. So when, uh, when in the Soviet Union, uh, they, there was a, a, a protest after the revolution by the Soviet Chess Society. They, could, <laughs> they were feeling a lot of political pressure to bring revolutionary ideals into chess. And they said, hold on, wait a minute. We need to keep chess for chess's sake. But the commissar came and said, oh, no, no, no. In the time of the revolution, everything must serve the revolution. Mm-hmm. So that is a, a, a just a great example of totalitarianism. In a similar way, it seems ridiculous to say it, but this is the mentality. Uh, I was looking last year, and Oreo Cookies has come out with uh, an LGBT pride right. brand. <laughs> You know, they're thinking, what does what do cookies have to do with gay pride? Well, right. this is this kind of therapeutic totalitarianism we have in this culture when uh, they want to make everything about creating a safe space uh, mm. for favored minorities, usually sexual minorities. 
So uh, the, our idea of totalitarianism in this culture comes from our memory of the Soviet Union, of gulags, of secret police, or George Orwell's 1984, where they tortured people to force them to conform. That's hard totalitarianism. In our case, you mentioned Aldous Huxley. I think that what we're facing, it has a lot more to do with Huxley's Brave New World than Orwell. Mm -hmm. Because uh, we are being seduced and, and cajoled to conform by comfort. By mm. We're being told that, uh, that these totalitarian measures that take away our religious liberty and reduce free speech and things that, that we come to depend on, that this is necessary to create a safe space. Mm. This is necessary to uh, so we don't hurt people's feelings and so on and so forth. Through these soft measures, we are surrendering our freedoms, and we don't see it coming because we are so we're we're looking for the KGB the <laughs> secret police to come over the the hill and haul us off to the gulag. I don't think that's going to happen. And but if that's what we're waiting on, then we don't see the totalitarianism that's actually rising around us as we uh, lose the ability to say what we really think. Uh, we and as our churches are becoming more and more pressed by the state and by corporations to abandon what we know to be true, and also I, I'll add one more thing that I don't think that if if we get to a serious totalitarian state, I don't think that it's still going to have gulags and secret police. I think that the state will be able to control Christians and others, will try to control Christians and others by using a social credit system the mm -hmm. way the Chinese government does. Under a social credit system, uh, the government tracks everything you do online, on your smartphones, uh, through GPS, uh, through uh, cameras on the street with uh, artificial intelligence, facial recognition software. All of this exists in China, mm -hmm. and it keeps a constant uh, tracking of your activities, and the algorithms assign each Chinese citizen a social credit rating which tells how, how, um, what a good citizen you are. If you have a, a high social credit rating, if you do things like download the speeches of Xi Jinping, or uh, you, you can get a high rating and you can have access to all kinds of comfort and privileges, the best restaurants, you can shop in the best places, you can travel. But if you have a lower social credit score by doing things like reading the Bible or associating with, with other quote-unquote bad people, then your score will go down and you will find yourself constricted more and more. Finally, if you have a low enough social credit score, you will not be able to buy or sell without the government's approval. Now, for Christians who are familiar with the book of Revelation, this should set off uh, alarms because this tells us exactly how that system of the Antichrist can come about. If uh, if we live in a total surveillance society uh, through the internet and, and the government does assign us these ratings, then uh, it is possible for us to be kicked out of the economy if we don't conform to what the state wants. Now, this is how it's happening, how the totalitarianism is coming. And if we have this George Orwell idea that that's the only way of totalitarianism, we're mm -hmm. going to completely miss what's happening. And that's what's happening today. Exactly. You framed it well. So, like, what's the big deal about having rainbow-colored Oreos? I mean, that's not an offense to anybody. Why can't we do that? If it makes people happy, it doesn't upset them. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's how we just continue to get moved down this road uh, in this totalitarian spirit today. And it doesn't seem like many people are seeing it or willing to stand up against it. 
No, and you're seeing this happen in churches too, mm-hmm. where uh, people are told, of course, use pronouns, use the pronoun people want. What could that harm? Yep. You know, and, and you say, well, what it does is it conditions you to telling lies, to defying reality for the sake of making someone comfortable. Now, look, I'm a Southerner. I think we're all Southerners here. <laughs> we're taught to make people feel good. We're taught to be polite. But this is going beyond politeness to madness, and it's being compelled on people. Uh, I, I hear all the time, every single day in my inbox, I'm hearing from people, often in Christian colleges, who are saying that you won't believe what's happening here. Mm-hmm. We are being frog-marched down uh whether it's uh, sexual orientation, gender identity policies using pronouns or in critical race theory, we're being told we have to accept this or Mm -hmm. we can't work here or we will uh, hold ourselves out to be pariahs. We could really suffer. We could lose all our friends. I got an email just yesterday. I put it on my blog at the American Conservative from a young Christian woman, 24 years old, who said that she's lost almost all of her friends because she will not go along with calling a so-called non-binary girl in their circles, she won't recognize that and use the pronouns a girl wants. Because of that, 20 of her friends abandoned her. Mm -hmm. My correspondent said, now, Rod, this is hard for me as a 24-year-old, but imagine you're a 16-year-old or an 11-year-old. There's no way you're going to stand up under that kind of pressure and being made a, a pariah, being made an outcast. But this is exactly the kind of thing that we Christians have got to prepare ourselves for. I happen to know this young woman's parents. I know that they're very solid Christians who prepared her and her sisters for just this kind of eventuality. Well, friends, it is here right now. And if we're not preparing our kids for it and ourselves for it, we're, behi- we're, we're running behind. One of the things we have to prepare this next generation for and ourselves is this triumph of the therapeutic idea. If the soft totalitarianism comes from without, there's also an enemy within and it's this um, idea of a spirit of of therapy. Then you mentioned that um, in your book that even conservative churches uh, have not been able to resist some of the spirit of the age uh, because this um, spirit of the therapeutic has even conquered conservative churches. Now I hear many people, we have a lot of conservative Christians, conservative churches that listen in. And I think we, our people would know where you're driving at. A lot of people would object and say, really, even in conservative churches, how have you seen this uh, spirit of the therapeutic uh, conquering conservative churches? Well, look, it's the middle class, you know, it's uh, if church is mostly about what makes the middle class comfortable and finding a way to put a little Jesus sauce on middle class values, they're going to capitulate. (laughs) They, They just are. You know, our Lord calls us to be disciples, not admirers. And there's a big difference. The difference comes when uh, when it gets down to suffering. If you're not willing to suffer for the sake of the faith and for the truth, then your faith is nothing but hypocrisy. The person who told me that, as you know, you read the Mm. book, was a Russian Baptist pastor named Yuri Sipko. Uh, Pastor Sipko is an old man now. He uh, led the Russian Baptist for many years. Those people suffered horribly under communism, but it taught him something. And he told me as we were standing on a street corner in Moscow, he said, go back to America and tell the churches, prepare to suffer, because there's no way to, uh, to, to validate your faith to know that your faith means something unless you're willing to pay a price, a sacrificial price. You know, I, this conversation reminds me of something that happened back in 2017 when I, I was given a series of speeches at an evangelical college, a conservative evangelical college, about my book, The Benedict Option. And one of these, uh, in one of these talks, I 
spoke about the need to develop spiritual disciplines. This is part of the life of discipleship. And, uh, but I could tell the students weren't really getting it. Sure enough, at the end of the, of the speech, uh, we had Q&A, a young woman raises her hand and says, sir, I don't understand what you mean about spiritual discipline. Why isn't it good enough to love Jesus with all our hearts, the way our parents taught us, and, um, and let that be enough? And I said to her, well, we have to start there with loving Jesus with all our hearts. But if we don't practice doing that and, and get into the habits, create habits around fidelity, then when times get hard, we're going to be blown, blown aside. And I could tell she didn't understand a word of it. Mm. Well, after that talk was over, a professor came up to me and said, Rod, what that young woman said is how 99% of our students think about these things. Mm. He said that they're products of youth group culture, you know, where, where Jesus is my best friend and we just talk about our feelings, eat some pizza, play some games, and that's that. He said they get here to this school and they're still living inside the evangelical bubble. But when they get out into the world, the first time someone says, oh, what Christians uh, believe is mean, that's not nice. They capitulate. They co- they collapse because they don't they don't have the spiritual disciplines to know what they believe and why they believe it, and to know that they have to be prepared to be hated for the gospel. Now, in a similar way, when I was in Budapest uh, in Hungary doing interviews for this book, uh, my translator was a young Catholic woman, twenty nine years old, uh, married five years, had one small child at home and one on the way. And we were riding on the tram to interview one of these old-time dissidents from the communist era. And she said, Rod, you know, it's so difficult when I try to talk to my friends, even my Christian friends, about the struggles I have as a wife and as a mom, I can't get them to hear me. Mm. As soon as I say that and my husband and I are struggling, they tell me, oh, leave your husband (laughs) or put your son in daycare. Mm. You've got to live your own truth. You've got to you know, make yourself happy. She said, I want to tell them, wait, I am happy. I'm happy being married. I'm happy being a mother, but it's not always easy. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm reaching out to you for help. But these people, these modern people, her generation, don't understand that life is supposed to have a certain amount of sacrifice and of struggle because that's just human life. And uh, I said to her, uh, Anna, it sounds like you're fighting for your right to be unhappy. She said, that's it. My right to be unhappy. Where did you get that? Well, I pulled out my smartphone. I went to chapter 17 of Huxley's Brave New World, Mm -hmm. in which uh, the dissident in that book, uh, John the Savage, is arguing with the world controller, Mustafa Mond, who can't understand why he, John the Savage, won't accept this, the Brave New World, this totalitarian society. Mustafa Mond says, we offer you Christianity without tears. You know, everything Mm -hmm. is taken care of. You have lots of uh, entertainment. You have drugs that make you feel good. You have all the sex you want. What's not to like? And John the Savage, who's not a Christian, he says, I want, I want God. I want beauty. I want sin. I, and he wants to suffer because he understands that suffering and struggle is a part of what it means to be a human being. Well, Mustafa Man, the world controller, says, well, you're welcome to it. That is precisely the world we're in today, mm-hmm. where, if we, where everybody is so afraid. This is the therapeutic culture. They're so afraid that anything that makes us anxious much less uh, brings any kind of uh, suffering, is something to be avoided at all costs. 
And if we're afraid to accept any kind of suffering or struggle as a normal part of life, then we are going to be completely at the mercy of these manipulators. Yeah, and that's it's. there's two levels to that. I mean, the, the one is just universally. You know, th- this is not utopia. And despite all the efforts for of people trying to convince us that it is or we can have it, it's just not so. It's not the real world that we live in. But then to see this coming into the church, th- this is what astounds me. I mean, our master was crucified. He was slaughtered, and he says, follow me. And to be a Christian, you you sign up for that. You say, okay, I'm going to be conformed to Christ. I'm going to voluntarily uh, live my life in deference to him as Lord. I'm going to be a slave. And yet this whole therapeutic mentality has come into the church, and it's no, no, no. Don't make anybody uncomfortable, and you shouldn't be uncomfortable, and there's a better way to avoid that. It's like we it is a different religion. It really is a different religion. It is. You know, a few years ago, there was a, a move in the state of California to take away Cal grants. These are um, grants, student, not even loans, just outright grants to needy students that they can use at any accredited state college in California to pay for their education. Well, there was a move by the head of the LGBT caucus in the state legislature to strip the Cal grants from Christian colleges that held to um, Christian traditionalism on sexuality. He called them bigot colleges. And if this had gone through, it would have forced Christian colleges to either compromise their conscience in a serious way or close their doors because they were really dependent on Cal grants. Well, a a friend of mine who works in an administration at one of the bigger Christian colleges there was trying to go around and muster support from the churches to fight this bill. And uh, he told me that he went down to Orange County, uh, which is famously conservative, lots of big evangelical churches there. And he went around to the churches and tried to get them to stand up for the colleges and for religious liberty. He said he could not get a single church to take his side. Mm. And I looked at him and said, why? You know, wh- what were they afraid of? He said they were afraid of being called bigots. They actually agreed with us on the principle, but they were terrified that if people call them bigots, that it could affect their um, their membership. People would quit going to their churches. It could affect their status and so on and so forth. This man, who himself was an evangelical, said the only reason we were able to beat that bill back was the black Pentecostals uh, pastors in s- southern Los Angeles and the Hispanic Catholic Archbishop of Los Angeles. He said if we had had to depend on white suburban evangelicals, we would have lost this fight because they were terrified of doing anything that would compromise their middle class sense of comfort and status. Wow. You know, Tom and I sense that same lack of courage as we assess really evangelical world in America. And uh, recently we wrote a book called Strong and Courageous, uh, seeing the need for that courage and for that strength. And the subtitle of this book is Following Jesus Amid the Rise of America's New Religion. If you don't have it, we encourage you to pick it up. Uh, Pick it up with Live Not By Lies. It'd be a great little companion guide to that. Um, And, you know, as we charted out, Rod, the uh, religion that we saw, and it was really this social justice mindset, critical theory mindset, all of that uh, thinking, it was fascinating to me. I was so invigorated when I was reading your work, your work here and notice here on page 42, you said something very similar. I'll read what you wrote and then I'd like for you to spell it out for people. And before I read, I think what the courage is going to be associated in the, 
in the Christian mind with seeing another religion at work. I think if they see it as another religion, you'll get many of these pastors to stand up and to take take a stand. So page 42, you say social justice warrior ranks are full of middle class, secular, educated young people racked by guilt and anxiety over their own privilege alienated from their own traditions and desperate to identify with something or someone to give them a sense of wholeness and purpose for them the ideology of social justice as defined not by church teaching but by critical theorists in the academy functions as a pseudo religion can you sketch that out for people if they say you know i see some of these things you're talking about but i don't quite see it in religious terms yet what's religious about it what's religious about it is it gives these young people a sense of purpose a sense of ultimate meaning and something to sacrifice for. Uh, you know, for so long, middle-class Christianity across the denominations in the U.S. has been all about, as I, we've been talking, about comfort, about feeling good about yourself, about feeling happy at all times. The social justice movement um, calls for sacrifice, and uh, but it is, it's fraudulent, but uh, it is a powerful, powerful ideology. When I was doing my research for Live Not By Lies, I went back to study the origins of the Bolshevik Party, the, the Communist Party that brought about the revolution in Russia, and it was the same kind of thing. They were responding, the, the young Bolsheviks were young intellectuals who are on fire for an idea. It was a corrupt idea. It was a satanic idea. But this idea, communism and Marxism, was so much more uh, vivid and, and life-giving in their minds than the church, which had grown lazy and fat and corrupt, and the government, which was also lazy, fat, and corrupt. And uh, there's a, a famous uh, Russian Orthodox priest who was sent to the Gulag, Father Arseny, and he once said in, the, in, in his memoirs, he said, you know, it's our fault in the church that we got communism here because we had... Uh, we had grown corrupt and we had our, our souls had grown dead. And I'm not saying that it was the, the it's necessarily going to be the fault of the church if social justice takes over here. But I think we do play a part in Absolutely. it and that our young people are looking for something to to crusade behind. Um, I, I found out, you know, as you know, from reading the book, Hannah Arendt, the, the political theorist, wrote a book called The Origins of Totalitarianism that uh, came out in 1951, where she set out to find out why Germany had gone with the Nazis and Russia had gone with the communists. And one of the things, or she, the thing she found was the most important factor was mass loneliness and alienation, especially among the young. And uh, we have that in spades here in America. So these young people are surrendering to this uh, this political ideology, this false religion, which has the force of revelation. I mean, you, if you, I don't know if you've ever tried to argue with any of these mm. uh, critical social mm -hmm. justice people, but you can't. Right. Either you're on their side or you are an enemy. The right. world is simple. It's Manichaean. There are sheep here. There are goats here. And we'll only get social justice, they believe, once, uh, once the evil people have been dealt with and moved aside and conquered. I mean, this is an apocalyptic pseudo-religion. And uh, if we don't understand how alienated young people, especially those who've not been well-formed in the church, who are coming out of these sort of, you know, bland, uh, comforting, comforting middle-class churches, how they want something to set their minds on fire, they're being deceived by this. It's, and also because this religion, this uh, pseudo-religion of social justice, is uh, now has the support 
of the establishment in the same way that back in the 1950s, someone may have joined the local Presbyterian church because this is what respectable people do, respectable mm-hmm. middle-class people do. Now, respectable middle-class people sign on to social justice. And so there's that powerful current as well. Yeah, it seems to me we've identified uh, several different groups, but two of the most problematic are the ones you just described, the true believers, you know, those who have bought in and, and they are going to pursue this agenda because they really believe this will make the world better. But then there are others who don't agree. It's like those California pastors you're talking about, but they provide cover and, and they uh, allow this to continue to grow, even though they'll tell you privately, you know, we agree with you. And we have those conversations too. You know, we have people tell us, oh man, we really agree with what you're saying and what you're doing, but you know, because of my position, can't stand up or it wouldn't be right, wouldn't be prudent for me to do this. What do you have to say to that second category of people? Well, I have to say that the title of my book is called Live Not By Lies (laughs) because that is what they have to do. They have to find their spine because if we, if good men and women stay silent and just protect their own interests by not speaking up against these lies and against this coercion, then we're going to lose yeah. and we're going to lose all our liberties and we're going to lose our churches. The title of the book comes from an essay that Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was the, mm-hmm. the most well-known uh, anti-communist dissident of the 20th century, it's an essay Solzhenitsyn wrote to his followers in Russia just before the Soviets expelled him in 1974. And in that essay, he said, listen, we can't hope to overturn this totalitarian regime. But one thing we can do is refuse to say what we don't believe. So he told them that when you're in a, in a public meeting and it's not possible to speak the truth, walk out. Do not participate in these lies, <clears throat> excuse me, if you can possibly help it, because the whole regime depends on everybody being afraid to speak the truth. And uh, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking about something I heard when I was in Moscow a couple of years ago doing interviews. This man, Alexander Ogorodnikov, who came from a communist family, found Christ uh, in his 20s. This is back in the 1970s and started a prayer group in Russia. He said that uh, an older man came to him and listened to what the Christians were saying in their prayer group and told them, brothers, if we had had just 10 of you Mm. back when the Bolsheviks uh, came to power, we would have been able to turn this back. But um, Mm. everybody was afraid. If we continue, we today in in 21st century America, if we hedge our bets and try to let other people take the risk and, and keep our counsel, keep our heads down, hoping that they won't come for us, then we are contributing, we are collaborating in the surrender of this country and the surrender of our liberties as Christians. We have got to stand up because we can't even respect ourselves if we don't. When I um, when I was in Czechoslovakia uh, interviewing people there, uh, younger people, they were telling me that when communism fell, uh, people of their generation, I say younger people, they're early middle age now, so the younger generation despised their parents who went along for the sake of gaining advantage, who, went, who collaborated with the communists for the sake of providing better opportunities for their children. Their children didn't even respect them. Their children, the, the ones that the children respected were those few, those relative few who stood up and said, we will not collaborate with the lies. We will, no matter what you do to us, even if you send us to prison, we're not going to go along with you. If we could spin off on that, that you guys are discussing, I do think that's a big part of the 
conversation right now is what do you do with these Christian Christian leaders that really see the lay of the land, but they're, they haven't tapped into the courage necessary? I think one one fundamental point is for them to develop an optimistic eschatology. So we actually have this long-term view optimistic eschatology. So it's not tied to America as a nation. It's not tied to even what's going to happen in our lifetimes or in our children's lifetimes, but it's tied to the authority of Jesus Christ as King of Kings, the resurrected King. He, he, he was victorious through suffering, but there was, there was, um, there was a farther up, farther in kind of um, mentality there with Christ for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. And what I think the lay of the land is now you have Christian leaders who are in positions of, of a significant power, um, significant responsibility, and uh, even kind of tying in your Benedict option book. Uh, there were so many things in there. As I read, I was like, yes, 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 yes. And I think some could interpret that of saying, well, I've got to back away from my position on the battlefield and go down, you know, into the catacombs. I've got to I've got to do this. And I think we've got to find a way to say, yes, there's going to be um, a principled retreat but it's for the purpose of advancing. It's for the exactly. purpose of taking another hill. And and even very practically, that means taking another hill. Like I know guys that are afraid to speak because they're afraid to get hit, but you actually need to get hit and then you need to punch back. You need, you need to be able to say something, but it's like the optimistic eschatology is not there. They're, they're, they're kind of bit by a defeatist mindset. So sure. anything you speak to there, Ron? Boy, that's... That's fantastic what you just said. Yeah, I, when the Benedict Option came out, I got accused by people who had not read the book of advocating <laughs> head for the hills. And I don't advocate that. I say in the book, clearly, there is no escape from this fight. But we Christians are so outmatched on the battlefield right now that we can't just attack uh, without thinking strategically about what's going on. I compare our situation to, say, the, the British Army at Dunkirk, mm. you know, we're facing the overwhelming might of the German army. If the British had attacked the Germans head on, they would have been annihilated. It would have been very brave, but they would have been annihilated and uh, they would have wasted their army. If they just kept their heads down and hoped that the Germans would leave them alone, that clearly wasn't going to happen. But they took a third option. They got on the boats and went across the channel to England where they could rearm themselves in the relative safety of England and prepare for D-Day. That's what I mean by the Benedict option in part is that we have got to recognize realistically what we're facing here in this culture as Christians and stand back from from the withdraw from the public square to a certain extent so we can rebuild our spiritual strength because our kids don't know anything mm. about the faith and by and large we've got to rebuild our spiritual strength so the faith can survive what is about to happen um, at the same time though we we can't just totally keep our heads down. We have to stand up when, when it makes sense to do so, when we can actually win these victories. We've got to show that not everybody is capitulating. It's a both and, not an mm -hmm. either or. And uh, I, I agree with what you say about the optimistic eschatology, but I would phrase it slightly differently. I would say a hopeful eschatology, because uh, I think there's a difference for Christians between optimism and hope. An optimist thinks everything is going to work out fine. Well, what does that say to the martyrs, to those who died for Christ? You know, whether they were martyrs from the early church all the way up to the martyrs of communism, to the martyrs that are being made right now in China and Africa. Uh, 
rather, Christian hope consists in knowing that even if the Lord uh, allows us to suffer and die for his sake, that there will be ultimate victory. And that's what you're saying. I understand that there will be ultimate victory in that, that the Lord will use our sacrifice, our faithful sacrifice, even the sacrifice of our lives for his purposes, for the redemption of the world. Uh, I see as as we're talking, I want to point out this. Here's an icon I found when I was in Russia of a, uh, this is a father and a son. Father, uh, the, the father is here. His name is Alexei Mechev. He was a priest who died in 1923. And his son, Father Sergei, died uh, in the Gulag in 1941. Uh, the Mechevs uh, were very holy people. Uh, Father Sergei took over his father's parish in Moscow after he died. The communists tried to force Father Sergei to join this pseudo-church, this state-controlled church, and he refused to do it. They sent him into exile, and eventually he was murdered by the communists in the Gulag. Today, as you can see, the Russian church honors these men as saints. Um, but all the people who capitulated, who went along, who joined the fake church just to so they wouldn't be hassled, nobody remembers them. Mm. Or if they think about them, they think about them as cowards. Mm. We are called to imitate uh, men like Father Sergei and Father Alexei, who knew when it came down to it what they had to do to serve the Lord. Rod, uh, the the book is so wonderful um, in large part because of the multiple interviews that you uh, bring to light and the people you talk to. Um, I'm sure the research had to be uh, grueling and exhilarating uh, all at once. What what impact did it have to talk to those folks who you, hey, they've suffered, they've lost wow. because of their faith? I, I've uh, I've had the opportunity to talk to men who've been in prison. 17 years, 25 years in China, stripes on their back because of the brutality. Romania, uh, those who had been persecuted. And it it changed me. I, what impact did this have on you in doing these interviews? Wow. Yeah, thank you for that question. It, there's nothing like talking to men and women who've been in it. Mm. You know, and I, as you know, in the book, I, I mentioned some of them. I Probably the one that got to me the most was this uh, man in Russia I mentioned earlier, Alexander Ogorodnikov. He is uh, 70 years old today. His face still betrays the beatings he took in prison. His face is partially paralyzed. And uh, he I met him in a, the lobby of the Hotel Metropole in Moscow for our interview. We found a quiet place. And my translator told me afterwards that uh, uh, he was afraid, Ogorodnikov was afraid to come to that hotel because back in the communist days, mm-hmm. it had been known as a nest of KGB agents. Mm-hmm. But he came, and I, I wouldn't have invited him there if I'd known that. But um, anyway, he came and we talked about his experiences. And I tell the story in the book, but your, your listeners, if they don't read the book, I want them to know this. Uh, Ogorodnikov spoke about being sent to the Gulag in 1978, and he was sent to death row, um, even though he didn't have a death sentence. But the communists wanted to make an example of him because he had come from a a well-known communist family, but apostatized from communism when he accepted Christ. And uh, he began to witness to the prisoners there on death row. And they began to be converted one by one. They accepted Christ. And so the communists moved him out into an isolation cell where he was beaten and tortured. Ogorodnikov began to lose his faith there, began to doubt God's providence. The Lord sent him visions every night in which an angel would come to him and show him 
images of prisoners being taken to their death. Uh, he couldn't see their faces, but they were their hands were cuffed, they were led by guards, and they were taken to their execution. Finally, after enough of these, Ogorodnikov realized the Lord was showing him that the men to whom he had witnessed, who had accepted Christ through his ministry, were going to their execution. They had death sentences, but they were going to be with the Lord in paradise because he was there. Ogorodnikov talked about how this is what restored his faith, and he knew that the Lord had him suffering there for a reason. And um, he went on to talk about uh, other cases, uh, about uh, an old prison guard who came to him once and was just terrified because the old prison guard had been present when the KGB lined up 50 Russian Orthodox mm -hmm. priests, one behind the other, put a gun to their uh, pistol to their foreheads and said, do you deny God? And they said, no, we, I believe in God. They had their brains blown out. And the brains from one of them went all, all over the face of the one behind him. They went down one by one and asked each one of those priests, do you deny God? Not one of those priests denied God. Uh, Ogorodnikov was sobbing when he told me this story, his tears running down his paralyzed face. And I got to tell you, that's when I realized I'm in the presence of a saint. I'm in the presence of something that I never would have seen from my comfortable middle-class life back home in the United States. And thank God for it, because God has given me the opportunity to tell the story of this man and so many believers who, whose experience of Christ and the, and the experience of suffering for Christ is something that I hope I never have to do. But if I do, I'm inspired by them because I, you're, when you're looking, when you're confronted with somebody who's courageous and heroic, you want to be like them. Mm -hmm. And I want to be like the, if, if I'm called to give that kind of testimony and to offer my life uh, to stand by Christ, uh, then I hope that I have the same strength as these brave men and mm -hmm. women. You know, maybe one one more question to drive into um, before we close up here, Rod, is uh, the many stories. There's the one you just told and others that you mark in the book stir up um, Christians, particularly in America, to responsibility now. What, what, what do we need to do now? In the second half of your book, you talk about how to live in truth. And you, you mentioned family. You mentioned a number of things. Um, particularly for our listeners, I'd love to hear you talk about chapter six, cultivate cultural memory. Uh, we have, uh, you know, folks that are probably listening to this podcast are uh, very serious about the family. You probably have a lot of family worship, a lot of family discipleship, catechism going on, serious about the church, understand the community of the church and how essential it is to gather with a worshiping community, uh, grasping those things. But this idea of a cultural memory, uh, what is it? And, and being tied to your people, having that tied to your tradition that's just being snipped mm -hmm. off and history being involved in that. But what, is, what does it mean to cultivate cultural memory? Uh, how do you do it? Why is it so important? Well, back when the Nazis invaded Poland in 1939, you know, it was impossible to stand up to the Nazi army, the, the Wehrmacht, uh, with guns. But there were people who resisted in other ways. Uh, Karol Wojtyla, the future Pope John Paul II, he was a young man then and a theater student. He and the other Christians in his circle realized that the Nazis hoped to, to conquer Poland by destroying the, the Polish people's memory of themselves as a nation and their Christian faith. And uh, this is classic totalitarianism. Whenever totalitarianism is in power, it seeks to control people by controlling their access to the past. Because mm -hmm. uh, people who know who they are, 
you know, and know who they are by the on the basis of the history uh, that their people have, uh, their history as Christians, their history as a nation, they're harder to control. That's why totalitarians go after it. So what Carol Wojtyla did in his circle, they wrote and performed plays underground that uh, told the story, just kept the stories alive of what it meant to be a Pole, a Polish history, and what it meant to be a Christian. They performed these uh, for audiences uh, in secret, and if the Nazis had found out what they were doing at any point, they all would have been shot. But this was their way, uh, Wojtyla's way, of fighting back to keep the memory of what it meant to be a Pole and a Christian alive. In the same sense, this is what these people under communism did, uh, they they would have lectures in their apartments. I tell the story about the Benda family in Prague and, and uh, Czechoslovakia. They would get people together and just tell stories of uh, about literature, the famous literature of their country. They would talk about history, all the things that they weren't getting in school because it was the communist aim to brainwash the people so they wouldn't remember anything about the past. And uh, but they they saw it as resistance these dissidents they saw it as their duty as resistors to keep these stories alive in the hearts and minds of their people especially their young. In Live Not By Lies, I have this really shocking and tragic story: a, a man in Budapest, in Hungary, a man who's probably about sixty years old. He teaches English there, uh, strongly anti-communist. But he said, you know, the tragic thing is that uh, what the communists and the Nazis before them tried to do in this country, destroy the historical memory of our people, they weren't able to do it, but liberal capitalist democracy mm -hmm. has been able to do it in the 30 years since communism fell. Mm -hmm. That's a striking thing. And, and what he was trying to tell me is that people in that country, they're free to study anything they want now, but they actually want to live in the present moment because they don't want to feel burdened by the history of the past. But if they don't have that anchor in the past and in the great literature, the great art, the religion, and the history of their country, they're going to collapse. And when I was in Poland, uh, I talked to some faithful Catholics, and Poland is a very Catholic country. I talked to some faithful young Catholics who were telling me that, yeah, within 10 years, this country is going to go the way of Ireland. Ireland used to be one of the most Catholic nations in the world, and now it is thoroughly secular. The faith collapsed almost overnight there. It was impossible for me to imagine how this could happen in Poland, the country of John Paul II, where the church was such, the church led the opposition to communism. But it turns out that one of the reasons this is happening is the generation that survived communism did not want to burden their children with these mm. harsh memories. And so they wanted their kids to have a fresh start. They didn't tell them the stories about the past. They didn't tell them. They, they just assumed that they would pick up Christianity. In fact, what the kids picked up is consumerism mm. and hedonism coming from the West. And it has thoroughly undermined the church there. Sorry for this long lecture, but it is so important for us as Christians in America today to talk about the history, not only of our country, but of our civilization. My kids go to a classical Christian school where they are taught uh, about the Greeks, the Romans, everything through Western history all the way up to the present time because the people who run the school and the parents who send their kids there believe this is important to know as Christians because we came from somewhere. This did, we didn't just fall out of the sky fully formed. We were formed by what our ancestors and their ancestors before them did 
we have to know this as believers, because if we don't know this, we're not going to have any any way to resist. Mm. Last point, uh, in the book, I talk about uh, a conversation I had with a 26-year-old California woman, well-educated, who mentioned that she thought communism was a great idea. I thought, really? Uh, why do you think that? She said, well, because it talks about the brotherhood of man and equality of everybody. Isn't that beautiful? I said, well, how do you, what do you think about the gulags? She said, what? Mm. I said, you don't know about the gulags? She had no idea about all the persecution that communism had done and all the death that it, it brought about because nobody had told her. She was born in 1993. Nobody had told this young lady about any of this, not in the schools, not her parents, certainly not our media. This really matters because we see so many young people, people of her generation in this country who declare that they're socialist or even communist mm. uh, because they don't know what it means. This is the price of abandoning history. You know, in the last page of your book, this is just ties in so well. You uh, you advocate keeping alive the memory of who we were, who we are to stoke the fires of desire for the true God. And you have a, a list of things in the last part of your book about positively that can be done. And those chapters are very practical and uh, uh, encouraging. And then you close out with a section of Solzhenitsyn's speech that his essay that you built the book upon or the titles comes from. Let me read this. And if you just make a closing comment about it. So Solzhenitsyn says, and so we need not be the first to set out on this path. Ours is but to join. The more of us set out together, the thicker our ranks, the easier and shorter will this path be for us all. If we become thousands, they will not cope. They will, not be, they will be unable to touch us. If we grow to tens of thousands, we will not recognize our country. But if we shrink away, then let us cease complaining that someone does not let us draw breath. We do it to ourselves. Let us then cower and hunker down while our comrades, the biologists, bring closer the day when our thoughts can be read and our genes altered. Mm. It's where we are. That's where, where we are. are. And, you know, but we still have free will. We still have the capability of resisting. And uh, I, I dedicated my book to this Catholic priest. I'm not a Catholic, but um, this man was a hero and a prophet, Father Tomislav Kolakovich. He was a... Um, a, uh, a Croatian priest who was doing anti-Nazi work in the underground there in 1943 in his home country. He found out that the Gestapo was coming for him, so he escaped overnight, slipped out of the country, went to Slovakia, which was his mother's homeland, and began teaching in a Catholic university there. And he told his, um, he told his students, he said, the good news is the Germans are going to lose this war. The bad news is when it's over, the Soviets are going to be ruling this country. And the first thing they're going to do is come after the church. We have to be ready. So what Father Kolakovich did was he started founding these small groups for prayer, but also for cultural analysis. So they would look out um, and, and see what was happening in their country, talk about it openly and clearly, and make a plan for what they as believers had to do to resist and to build the underground. Uh, within two years of his arriving in that country, there were small groups all around uh, Slovakia uh, dedicated to prayer and preparation. The Catholic bishops of that country chastised him. They said, Father, you're alarming people. It's never going to happen here. Stop scaring people. But he didn't listen to them because Father Kolakovich had studied in seminary to do missionary work in the Soviet Union. So he knew the communist mindset. He kept up his work. 
Sure enough, when the Iron Curtain fell over that country, the first thing the communists did was start closing churches, arresting pastors, and persecuting Christians. Because Father Kolakovich and his followers laid the groundwork for the underground church, the life of the church was able to continue even under harsh persecution. I cited him as I, I dedicated the book to his memory. He died in 1990 because I firmly believe that we are in a Kolakovich moment here yeah. in America. We have to take advantage of the freedom that God has given us right here, right now to prepare ourselves spiritually, but more than spiritually, we need to prepare these networks of fellowship so that we can help each other when the persecution starts. Uh, if people call me alarmist, I don't really care because I've, I know what's coming. I've, I've studied this and I have listened. The, the reason I even have this book is because people who grew up under communism, but who escaped to America started telling me that the things they see happening in America now remind them of what it was like when communism first arrived in their country. I thought they were alarmists too, but the more I listened to them and looked into it, I came to understand that they see something the rest of us don't, and we're fools if we don't listen and get ready. Rod, I mean, it's been great to have this discussion on the podcast. And while we close up right now, I would love to hear a little bit more about that, about what you do see, the parallels, and then the kind of inside baseball. And here's, here's what needs to be done in order to prepare. And so uh, we have the Armory for those who are part of the Founders Alliance membership. And uh, we'll jump into the Armory and have just a short conversation to sketch that out a little bit more. Thanks so much for uh, joining us on the Sword and the Trial, Rod. It's been a, a great encouragement. Make sure that you do uh, pick up Rod Dreer's most recent book, Live Not by Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. Thanks, Rod. Thank you.